And welcome to Talk to Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And, you know, I remember when I was young, I saw Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Well, there's a sequel now. Smith comes to WHMP, starring, among others, Professor Carrie Baker. Uh, Carrie, what do you have for us today? It's great to be here, Bill um, and Buzz. So I am absolutely thrilled to have my new colleague at Smith College, who is Loretta J. Ross. Loretta is an associate professor in the Program for the Study of Women and Gender and recently won a MacArthur Genius Award and is going to be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in March, along with Serena Williams. <laughs> Holy smokes. Loretta, yeah. Loretta, great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. So I actually met Loretta 35 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, when she was at the um, Center for Democratic Renewal. And I was a lowly volunteer. And um, she has had quite a pathway. Um, she was the second director of the first rape crisis center in the country in Washington, D.C. She worked for the National Organization for Women and organized some of those massive um, uh, you know, rallies that happened then. She was one of 12 black women who created the reproductive justice movement. And she was the founder of Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. So we are so lucky to have her here in Northampton and at Smith College. And so Loretta, I wanna start by asking you, what do you do at Smith? What do you teach? What do you do in there? Well, I have the joy of teaching a course called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump. So I teach a lot of students what fascism is and how to fight it. And I'm so proud that Smith, instead of running away from these topics, is running towards them and hired me to teach that topic so that the students of Smith understand the threat to democracy that we're facing. Absolutely. And students flock to this class. They all absolutely love it. What else are you teaching, uh, Loretta? Well, I also started a couple of years teaching a course on reproductive justice. I actually should have probably been teaching that when I first started teaching five years ago. But when I saw Trump come down that golden escalator, I thought I had a particular <laughs> body of knowledge that young people needed. I thought there were a lot of people like you who could teach reproductive justice, but I wanted to teach about white supremacy. So those are my two courses. And also at Smith, I'm helping to head up what I hope to be a human rights initiative so that the students graduating from Smith know what their human rights are and can use the human rights framework to fight fascism. So Loretta, you have a deep and rich background um, fighting for human rights. I know you were in Beijing in 1995 and you founded, was it called the National um, Human Rights Education Center? That's close enough. Um, Close enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't we know our human rights here in the United States? Because of conservatives. Back when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was affirmed by the United States, December 10th, 1948, our Secretary of State back then was a man named John Foster Dulles. You know, Dulles Airport is named after him. And he wrote a memo to the president saying, we need to be careful of this human rights thing because we don't want our Negroes to get agitated. And so wow. from then on, the conservatives call every conversation about human rights a communist plot trying to undermine the sovereignty of the United States. 
They have for, yeah. kept us from ratifying more than 20 treaties that we should have signed on to. And we're the only industrialized country that has not signed the majority of the human rights treaties that are available. And once we sign them, then they got to be ratified by a two-thirds majority of the Senate. And, and even when the Democrats control the Senate, they're not putting their weight into passing and ratifying these treaties, like the Women's Human Rights Treaty or a, a whole bunch of them, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. I mean, we, were only, yeah. we had to be blackmailed into signing the treaty on the prevention of torture and genocide when the other countries wouldn't join us in prosecuting the Gulf War unless we committed not to commit torture and genocide. And then, of course, we immediately did Guantanamo, so we didn't really mean that either. So we have here with us today Loretta Ross, an associate professor in the Program for the Study of Women and Gender here at Smith College. So Loretta, what are our human rights? I know they come in sort of eight or nine categories. Can you just give the, the nutshell of what our human rights are? Because I think so many Americans don't know what they are. You're absolutely right. Only 7% of the American public has heard of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so the eight categories are civil rights, your right to be treated as an equal in society, political rights like your freedom of speech, your right to vote, economic human rights so that the economy should be managed for the people and not for Wall Street, social human rights that are about your human needs, your human needs like food, water, health care, education. And then there's cultural human rights, which is, of course, freedom of religion is a human right, but freedom from religion is also a human right. And we in the women's movement should be calling that out all the time because people who are restricting women's right to abortion are human rights violators. Then there's environmental human rights, the right to clean water, climate change, you know, fighting climate change is a human right. Then there's developmental human rights, and those are the ones where people in, what, in the global south demand to develop their own natural resources. And then my favorite human rights are sexual human rights. These are the human <laughs> rights that were demanded by the women's movement starting in the 70s to determine if and when we'd have sex, if and when we'd marry, if and when we'd have babies. And so those are the eight categories basically as they are. But I think new categories are emerging. The ninth category is probably going to be called digital human rights because we're really getting to the point that if you're not digitally connected, you're not going to be able to enjoy the same rights as people who are. And the 10th category, I like to imagine it's going to be called scientific rights, because why should the only people, you know, who get to travel in space are insecure billionaires? And so. <laughs> wow, Loretta, you are so forward thinking. You always have been. So, um, Professor Ross, I wanted to ask you next about what is, and this is a big question, but I know you can handle it if anybody can. What's your take on the current political landscape, especially around reproductive uh, rights and justice and the November 2024 elections? What do we need to be looking out for? Well, I'm surprisingly optimistic because I think it was some famous general that said, never get in the way of your enemy making mistakes. And the Republicans <laughs> are overreaching. I mean, Look at what's happened every time abortion has ended up on the ballot. It has been pro-choice Republicans that have delivered victories to our side. We don't have enough Democratic yeah. votes in Kansas and Kentucky to have pulled those things off. They have split their own base. 
and they have pissed off a lot of young people. They have pissed off people who do care about democracy and democratic values. I'm not quite sure why independents would want to vote for anything that looks that corrupt and that inept. I mean, look, just look at what the last wonderful week that they've had. They <laughs> tried fought, fought for a border bill that then they vetoed because they didn't want the policy that they claimed they wanted. I mean, they found something they couldn't say yes to, I guess. I mean, so our job is to show up, act like this is our lunch counter moment, like those kids at that Woolworth counter who got spit on and all that stuff, but they knew that they needed to take a, make a stand and make history. I thought I was too young to have been there in the 50s, but this is our lunch counter moment now. So we have to stand firm and ride to victory. I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I studied Trump. I studied the far right and, and how they, they've mainstreamed all that ideology. I fail to believe that the majority of the American public is as stupid as they like to think that they are. So uh, to the listeners, um, Professor Ross, um, I mentioned the Center for Democratic Renewal earlier. That used to be the anti-Klan network, and they did they do did undercover work into the far right, the extreme violent right, Christian nationalists, all those groups, and um, sort of it was a tracking, it was opposition research. So Loretta really knows very deeply and saw coming from many years ago um, a lot of what we're experiencing today. Loretta, I also want to ask you about the Supreme Court. And, you know, I'm a lawyer and I, you know, sort of came of age thinking of the court as somewhere where we can win uh, the rights of minorities, win the rights of um, the people that are excluded from Congress or legislatures. And to me, what's happened to the court in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years has been so disillusioning. What's your take on the court and what we can do about it? Well, I think because I'm a black person and my attention to the court starts with Dred Scott. I actually never thought the Supreme Court was going to be the vehicle for my liberation. Black people yeah. have been disappointed by the Supreme Court too many times to have invested in it the hope that you have. And so I was disappointed but not surprised because the Republicans have been organizing to beat back women's rights, gay rights, immigrant rights, civil rights, ever since President Johnson signed the first Civil Rights Act. That yeah. has been their major mobilization strategy, from George Wallace to, to Richard Nixon to Ronald Reagan to Bush's to Trump. There's a through line there. They always rely on organizing in defense of white supremacy. And so, yeah. and the fix is in, whether it's the mainstream media or the judicial system or Congress. They are extremely reluctant to deprive themselves of power in order to grant us our human rights. So what's our pathway forward if, if the courts are hopeless and, I mean... <laughs> well, I, I kind of like the quip that James Carville used around Hillary Clinton and Obama, and, and he was wishing that Obama would be a little bit more assertive, and she said, you know, Hillary Clinton needs to lend him one of her balls. <laughs> I really think that we need to be more aggressive. If Joe Biden wins, or when Joe Biden wins, he needs to 
killed the filibuster. He needs to con Absolutely. seriously consider expanding the Supreme Court. And my private dream is that he brings Obama out of retirement and put him on the Supreme Court. President oh, that would Obama. be delicious. Oh, my God, <laughs> yes. I mean, And he would certainly stir things up. Um, I think that he could be aggressive around getting us a fair immigration policy, yeah. passing a, a, a federal edict on protecting abortion rights. If the Democrats get control of the House and the Senate and the White House, I'm not going to settle for them not delivering to us what we offer to them by putting them in power. No more of that Absolutely. compromise with the enemy. Because when you compromise with the bully, they just keep bullying. They don't ever yeah. give anything up. And I'm, I'm really tired of 50 years of Democrats not understanding that. Absolutely. We need to get the ERA recognized as well, which Absolutely. has been fully ratified. And the Republicans are just blocking it with a filibuster. Right. Yeah. So we got to get rid of the filibuster as number one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to turn now to ask you about your forthcoming book, which is um, about calling in. And um, you have been a real leader on this. And uh, I want, tell me about it. Tell me about the book. Well, I have to honestly say I'm late to the game because I wasn't on social media much until 2015. But once I got on social media, I noticed how unbelievably mean people were to each other. And so I asked the young person what was going on, and they said, oh, you mean the call-out culture? And I said, y'all named it? They said, yeah. I then started thinking about all that I had been through. I mean, at the Rape Crisis Center, I talked black, uh, black feminist theory to men who were incarcerated for raping and murdering like me. If I found a way to talk to them, how come you can't find a way to somebody who's messing up your gender pronoun? I mean, give me a break, right? And so I started teaching techniques for having difficult conversations with people, even if you don't agree with them. That doesn't mean you, get a, you don't have to respect their human right and their right to have an opinion that's different from yours. Well, there's no other conversation I'd rather be eavesdropping on than this one right now with Professor Carrie Baker and Professor Loretta Ross. We have a genius. We have MacArthur genius in the house. Oh, they made me a mistake in the criteria. I don't feel very smart, but I do my best. <laughs> well, I'm mesmerized <laughs> listening to you. We'll be right back with more. to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Smith professors, Carrie Baker and Loretta Ross. Uh, please, Carrie, continue this conversation about the book that Loretta's recently written. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, Bill, do you have a question I, you wanted to ask? I do, and it relates to uh, Loretta Ross's new book. Uh, in your earlier segment, uh, you mentioned and Loretta Ross described her course at Smith, White Supremacy in the Age of Trump. 
What I would like to hear more about is how you have those conversations about that in your class. And in particular, given what I suspect is a diverse class, how do you address and deal with the issue of white fragility? Well, first of all, you have to establish as foundational that there's a difference between white supremacy, the ideology, the body of ideas, and whiteness as an identity. Because that's just an identity, like blackness is an identity. It's also made of stuff that they make us pretend to have to live by. But there is an ideology, and it is obvious that all white people are not white supremacists and subscribe to that ideology. And sadly, not all people who subscribe to that ideology are white. And so once you make that foundational distinction, it's not hard to teach about white supremacy without <laughs> triggering white fragility because we know we're not talking about their identity. We're talking about and critiquing the ideas. And when you say white fragility, what do you mean? Well, there is a reluctance to teach young people about difference, particularly differences dealing with race. And so they come to Smith often ill-prepared to have these conversations. Whenever they notice whether somebody was black or disabled, their parents shushed them and made it sound like they were saying the F word or something. And so they come thirsty for the knowledge, but thinking it's kind of like forbidden fruit that they can't talk about. And so I enjoy having 40 or 50 <laughs> students in each of one of my classes because I teach how to have fun learning about white supremacy. Matter of fact, one of my mentors, Leonard Zeskin, used to always say, he said, fighting Nazis should be fun because <laughs> it's being a Nazi that sucks. And so I teach them how to have joy in doing human rights work, learning about the stuff that should have been taught to you from K through 12. Well, at least you'll get it now. I don't haze them. I don't shame them. And I also don't tell them what to think. I, sometimes mm. the students want me to judge whether they're a racist or not. I'm like, oh, that's not my job. My job is to give you the information, and you can decide whether you're a racist or not. I'm not crawling into the crevices of your mind to figure out what you actually believe. I'm just offering you options so that you, based on the information I provide you. So I have a lot of fun teaching it because there's a lot of joy in learning about human rights and fighting fascism. And I actually think the human right to joy should be the 11th human right because- That's a great idea, Loretta. <laughs> I really do think. I mean, we have to look at the vomit of the world, but we have to also ensure that it doesn't destroy our zest for life. I was reading this guy named Viktor Frankl, who'd been a Holocaust survivor, who said this, roughly the same thing. And- I just truly believe that. Absolutely, Loretta. So um, you mentioned your book is about calling in. So before you were mentioning calling out and the sort of phenomenon where people kind of police and judge each other for how they say things or, you know, for not knowing enough. What is the alternative of calling in? What What is that? Well, there are many options. I created something that I call the 5C continuum, which is calling out canceling somebody, because we all know what calling out is. That's publicly shaming somebody when we think they need to be held accountable for something they've done wrong. Canceling is when you want to get them really good because you want them to get fired or lose their reputation or at least lose their platform. 
calling in is not the opposite of calling out because it's also an accountability process. But instead of using anger, blaming, and shaming to achieve accountability, you use love and respect. So it's still about accountability. And then there's calling on when you don't want to make an investment in somebody else's growth, when you really want to tell them to talk to the hand. You're calling (laughs) on them still to do better. And my favorite way that the young people use calling on when they look at you like you've lost your mind and they say, are you okay? <laughs> you know, <'cause> that <laughs> so indicates that whatever you just said and did did not land well. And then the fifth option, of course, is calling it off. And so a calling in is really a call out, but it's done with love and respect instead of anger, blaming, and shaming. Because you're always going to talk to people as if you're holding their heart in your hand and you don't want to squeeze it too tight because that's how you want your heart to be held. And so I've you know, t- deprogrammed white supremacists, talked to rapists, and Lord knows 50 years in oh, oh, the women's movement has taught me how to build bridges and have difficult conversations and stand up for my values without weaponizing my knowledge or my values against others. So did I miss this? What is calling off? Calling off is disengagement. You have no obligation to continue a non-productive conversation with someone either in person or online who's name-calling, not telling the truth, cherry-picking their facts. You know, it's kind of hard to argue with people who don't believe in gravity. So I just tell them to jump out of a window and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) See, Loretta, your other technique is humor. You use humor, and I think that really works with our students because it it dissipates the tension when you're talking about difficult issues. Uh, And you've got great stories from all your 40 years of amazing activism. We've got Loretta Ross here with us, who's a professor at Smith College, a MacArthur genius, entering the National Women's Hall of Fame next month. Um, Loretta, tell us about when your book is coming out and where we can get it. Well, Simon & Schuster won the bid to get the book, And they promised me that it's supposed to be out January of 2025. But they also promised me that it was going to be out this year. But I got, (laughs) somehow it got sidetracked. Even though they didn't tell me this officially, I think they put a lot of their energy into that book on Elon Musk. And they kind of (laughs) backshelved a lot of their authors because of that. They didn't say that officially. But that's what I feel that happened. Right, right, right. Well, we'll have a big party opening book talk at Smith in January of 2025 for you, Loretta. And uh, I really encourage everybody to come. Loretta, you're bringing a number of your MacArthur buddies to Smith, I think, at the end of March. I think it's March 28th. Can you tell folks about that? One of the things that I had an opportunity to do as a MacArthur awardee was bring together other MacArthur awardees and given a little bit of money, and I wanted to bring us together who all work on reproductive justice and abortion rights. So on March 28th at Smith from 6 to 8 in the Carroll Room, we're having a forum entitled Abortion as a Human Right. And the reason I chose that title is that we who do human rights work through a gender lens have been fighting for 50 years for them to demasculinize the human rights framework. I mean, we, it only took the war, you know, in Yugoslavia, Kosovo, for them to finally acknowledge that rape was a weapon of war. And then only mm-hmm. amnesty 
very, very reluctantly about 10 years ago started talking about denial of reproductive freedom as a human rights violation. But there's still a lot more work to be done within the human rights movement to acknowledge that when a person is forced to carry a pregnancy against their will, that is as close a definition to slavery as we're going to get. And so abortion, denial of abortion, not only is it sex discrimination like Canada has proclaimed, but it, oh, by the way, there was a court, was it in Pennsylvania that also said the same thing last week? Uh, yeah. the, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania also said the same thing. But it's a human rights violation. And so front and center, we're looking that straight in the eye. I've got uh, Amy Hackstra Miller coming, who runs abortion clinics around the country. I've got Billy Avery, who's the founder of the National Black Women's Health Project and whose shoulders we all stand on. I've got Ross Pacheski, who has done abortion rights activism worldwide, uh, particularly in Latin America. I've got Regina Moss Davis coming, who's the executive director of the Black Reproductive Justice Organization called In Our Voices, and Marcella Howell, who is the founder of In Our Voices, and Marlene Gerber-Fried from Hampshire College uh, is going to be our moderator. And I, of course, I'm speaking on the program too, but it's going to be great because we got four geniuses, if you want to call us that. And <laughs> Absolutely, I do. And it's open to I'm the public and we'd love to see people there. Yikes. Carrie Baker, before we go, I just have to ask a question. Where do I pay tuition? Because I really feel like <laughs> I've been blessed today. <laughs> this Isn't year I started letting I mean, I... people audit my classes uh... for the first time this year. But you have to apply through Smith to do that. I've been uh, attending Loretta's lectures and classes for years now, and I am always learning an immense amount more each time I hear her speak. It's truly amazing. So, Loretta, I want to thank you for being here with us today and for sharing your perspectives and your knowledge and your humor and your love with all of us. And um, you are an inspiration. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Professor Carrie Baker. Just wonderful. Feminist Futures, an important part of our uh, month. And thank you so much for introducing us to Loretta Ross. For those of us that didn't know her, what a pleasure. We'll be right back with the director, Jessica Nicole of Smith College Museum of Art. Another Smith attendee here today. should understand She's not just a plaything She's flesh and blood just like a man If you wanna do, do right, right, do right, hold do right This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg